before today's episode, we wanted to let you know about a festival we're co-sponsoring in June called Seventh Stay Nine. Seventh Stay Nine will take place Saturday, June 19th at Rhizome in D.C., and the lineup will be announced very soon. More information can be found at seventhstaynine.com. I, I couldn't unsee what I had seen. <laughs> you know, uh, once I analyzed what he did in that song, I, I, there was no way I could ever go back to another way of writing. Um, or I could never, I could, I could only go down that path. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Suzanne Vega's imprints on modern folk pop began in the 1980s with her hit songs Luca and Tom's Diner, both from her album Solitude Standing. Tom's Diner was later remixed by English electronic group DNA and became a top 10 hit in multiple countries, further extending her immediately recognizable, unadorned vocal style to a larger audience. Her newest release, an evening of New York songs and stories was released in September of 2020. The first song Vega chose as formative for her was Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall by Bob Dylan. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I've crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, 
It's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain's gonna fall. All right, a hard rain's gonna fall. I picked this one uh, because I love Bob Dylan, but more than that, I think this was the song that taught me how powerful. Uh, images could be in a song. Um, there's a lot of songs that have messages and that tell you what you're supposed to believe and tell you how the writer feels about something and tries to persuade you through their words and through the melody to, to get you on their side. Um, but I've always found in Bob Dylan's writing a kind of wonderful power in uh, just the images alone. So, um, and the images from this song that really got to me were, I saw a white ladder all covered with water. Um, I saw a, a black man who walked a white dog, or maybe it's a white man who walked a black dog. Um, I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. Uh, each one of these images is so powerful in and of itself um, that, uh, and yet he's not trying to persuade you of anything. He's just laying out this landscape and showing you these different um, images. So uh, that way of writing um, really influenced my way of writing. I felt that I, because I'm a person who also thinks in metaphor, I think in pictures very often. Um, and so I see things. And so I then had learned to write those things down. Um, and if there was a narrative, say in The Queen and the Soldier, for example, I learned to f try to figure out what that narrative was and to to put it into a song without the need to explain it. You know, because some people will come to you and say, well, what's the message? What's the message of your song? And it's not really about having a message. You know, there are some songs that do. But if it really, if it were a message, you could just write it and put it on a on a you know, a little um, card and put it up on a bulletin board. But this is not that. It's, uh, there's something about Bob Dylan's way of writing that retains all the mystery and power of the actual images themselves. And um, that's why I picked that song. And that's why I picked Bob Dylan. Um, because of that particular angle of of songwriting. I, I couldn't unsee what I had seen. <laughs> you know, once I analyzed what he did in that song, I, I, there was no way I could ever go back to another way of writing. Um, or I could never, I could, I could only go down that path. At what point uh, would you have first heard this? I heard A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall probably as a child because my stepfather was very influenced by that song. Um, I remember him playing it around the house. It was not a song that was played on the radio, um, but it wasn't something, I, I think I probably really began thinking about it when I was 19 or 20. So I had a, t a good decade to think about it. It had really sunken in by that point. By the time I be had become a songwriter of any uh, sophistication, I mean, then I, I started to think about what I was doing, how I was doing it. Um, and how to do it better. You know, it's uh, 
Dylan in particular is of a generation of songwriters who came of age, if I can say that, um, paying attention to writers. And, you know, I mean, some of the images you brought up earlier, very much like William Carlos Williams, uh, you know, and all this stuff I remember basically, frankly, from college poetry classes. Um, I don't know that a lot of songwriters these days pay that much attention to writers. And maybe that's fine. Maybe that's even a good thing. But it seems like that that is a specific type of writing that is very different than a lot of people do these days. And I'm curious if you understand what I'm talking about and maybe even see that. Yes, I, and I agree. I think that's called imagist writing. And there are some other poets. It's William Carlos Williams. There's uh, the great and wonderful, what is her name again, with the red hair. Um, uh, her name has gone out of my head. Um the really famous one from the 1920s. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's that. Uh, but there's it's more than that. It's even more than that, actually, because when I started to do research on Google, which is so wonderfully available these days, and I started to research about images, it led me to uh, Jung, Carl Jung, and then it led me to the tarot, which is all about these images that you see and then you interpret and that have power in a given moment. So it went way beyond the world of um, poetry that I thought I would go play around in. Um, it sort of led me, and I'd know, I didn't, hadn't known anything about tarot before that or even thought about it, really. I thought it was sort of a fun, cute game that you might do at a party. But um, it, it really uh, took me down a rabbit hole of a much deeper kind of way of interpreting um, these images that are, are not just artistic or beautiful, but that have a certain power in the moment. So if you came to back to the song uh, when you were, you know, 18, 19, uh, probably in college yourself at that point, was this, would this have been something that steered you toward being a songwriter and performer? Oh, by 19, I had already had, I already had written a hundred songs or, or so. And I think I, I had, I was at that point trying to switch over from, uh, the bitter end in, on Bleecker Street where I never could get a gig. Uh, I think I auditioned there for two whole years and they, I finally just said, I'm not going to go to their open mic night anymore because they're not hiring, they're not, they're not hiring me. So I went to Folk City instead. So that was about the year that I did that. I sort of decided, I'm going to go to Folk City. Bob Dylan went to Folk City. Uh, I, I'm ready to cross that threshold now. You know, that was what I was doing at that point, where I did very well. Well, once I got to Folk City, everyone embraced me with open arms. It was like I really found like I'd found my tribe. I felt like I'd found my tribe. Did you do something different or was it just a different frame for the work you were already doing? It was a different frame f for, uh, for the work I was already doing. Um, the guy at the bitter end said to me, um, I think I remember him saying, you know, your songs are really like poetry. And if you can write this stuff, you can write real songs. So, um, <laughs> so I said, okay. And, and then I, when I went to Folk City, everyone said, oh, you're writing poetry. And they sort of uh, included me in their tribe of people who would discuss metaphor and language and uh, politics and, and all of these things. And so I felt, I felt I'd really found my, my group.
The second piece of music Vega chose as essential to her formation as an artist was Philip Glass's album Mishima. Here's the title track from that collection. chose Mishima by Philip Glass because um, it really had a profound effect on me at the time I listened to it. Uh, I think it came out in 1985 or 1986, and I had already known about Philip Glass. Uh, I sort of, um, I was a dancer in the 70s, and so I listened to, the, every choreographer was in love with Steve Reich in 1976. So I did many dances to Steve Reich's music and slowly I began to realize there were composers in the minimalist vein beyond Steve Reich and of course the next one I found was um, was Philip Glass and I had seen Einstein on the Beach in 1984 um, and I had been going through a difficult breakup in, in 1986 and I had to work on some songs for the second album. So I I ended up moving to an apartment by myself and just playing the Mishima soundtrack over and over again. Um, I loved it so much. And I, I knew Philip by then. We'd sort of had a little bit of a working relationship. Um, and I really let it sink in. And I, I, I've always found a kind of power in his work because, again, it's there's something... Uh, incantatory about it. It's like uh, it's like it's like reciting a liturgy or something. There's something in the power of the way that he repeats things, and he never repeats it really the same way twice. Um, and I just found it very moving on a very deep level. And I felt that some of that seeped into the Solitude Standing album, and especially that song. Um, I felt that uh, he. Uh, that even in the song Solitude Standing, the, there's a little riff there that kind of repeats and goes back to the beginning. Um, and he, I learned through listening to him that to repeat oneself is okay, you know, especially as a songwriter. I mean, there's an element of that that is good. Um, you, As a songwriter, I'm attracted to things that repeat uh, a chorus, you know, a tagline, um, you know, and then we sing the song again. I mean, it's really all about the repetitions. And if you enjoy repetitions, as I do, um, it it's it's nice to have that validated by someone else's body of work. 
Um, so that's why I picked Philip Glass and especially Mishima, which I find so emotional. Uh, and I asked Phil once, uh, did he feel anything different when he wrote it? You know, and he said, no, it's just a biographical, um, you know, piece of work for uh, about the right the author Mishima, and he didn't wasn't feeling particularly emotional. He just wrote it, um, but I find it very very moving. Is it still something you go back to, or does it feel very much kind of tied to that time? Um, I do occasionally go back to it. Yeah, I still find it very moving, and I still love the juxtaposition of the uh, the classical what we think of as classical instrumentation and then the he has these like slightly out of tune rock and roll guitars that come in it on in one little movement um so there's this wonderful feeling of of freedom uh and and just like of spontaneity um in in spite of all of this like relentless um r repetitions that kind of take you to the highs and lows of what he must have been what he mishima must have been experiencing you know, for a while there, it seemed like uh, Philip Glass scored about every sixth or seventh film. And frankly, I kind of wonder why that's not the case anymore. And I kind of miss those days. Do, do you have any insight as to why that is no longer the case? I still think he, he does a lot of film work. Um, I'm trying to think of what was his most recent one. Well, I mean, he's been working on things like Ak Akhenaten. Uh, you know, which came out at the Met last f fall, which was this tremendous spectacular. Um, I mean, that must have been, uh, that, that's probably why. I mean, he's probably doing things on that scale. So he's not dashing off these, uh, these films or uh, commercials uh, for, for whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, if I, if I speak to him, I'll, I'll ask him. <laughs> Next time I email him, I'll say, hey, Phil, what's up? What are you working on? The final piece of music Vega chose as being crucial to her was from Lou Reed's The Berlin Album. Here's Sad Song from that record. recent album, which is a live album, um, uh, uh, very much tied to New York, um, which is a city very much identified with Lou Reed. Um, you talk about, um, you tell a little story about Lou Reed and going on a date to see him, I think, right? Um, I'm curious about um, why, I mean, Lou Reed obviously holds a place in your heart. Why, 
why this particular um, record is, is the one. This record was the first record I bought after seeing a concert of Lou Reed's. Um, it was almost by mistake. I mean, someone had asked me out. Uh, he had an extra ticket. Uh, I went with him. It wasn't even somebody I knew very well. Um, I was really shocked at first and kind of dismayed. You know, I was not really into the punk rock scene. I really liked folk music. Um, I I was really uh dismayed by what he was doing on stage. He, you know, he was pretending to shoot up heroin, which I, heroin, which I thought was kind of disgusting, really. And, and, and so he was doing all of this. And in the second half of the show, he stopped doing all of that and just sang the music, and, uh, which I liked. And then I realized that the first part of the show had been a show, like a theater show. Like it, he wasn't actually doing those things. This is something he had practiced and rehearsed. So he was doing it for an effect. Um, and this was impressive to me. And then when I heard the song Caroline Says Part Two, I thought this is a very powerful song. Um, I can't believe I just heard him say that. Are we allowed to say things like that in a song on a stage? Um, this is not theater, you know, this is, this is music. It, so it, it just really changed my whole context of what you could do and say in a song. So after that, I had to figure out, I knew I wanted to go back and study the whole world of Lou Reed, but I had, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know my way in. Um, and I didn't have much money. So I stood in front of the rec in the record store in front of the R section and flipped through all the albums that were available. And I was trying to figure out which one do I buy? Um, do I buy Transformer? Oh, that's the hit. It has the hit Walk on the Wild Side. Um, or do I buy like Sally Can't Dance or, and I didn't, wasn't sure I liked that character that he's playing with the top hat and the, it looked very cabaret. So, but here, then there was the Berlin album. Um, and I saw the song that I remembered. And I think I read on there that he was playing acoustic guitar. And I thought, I play acoustic guitar. And it has the song that I remember. So I bought that one. And that's the only one I had for years. <laughs> that's the only Lou Reed. Because we didn't have, you know, iPhones back then. We had to actually commit ourselves to a huge piece of vinyl in its cardboard cover. So um, I wasn't going to invest in something else that I didn't know anything about. And Berlin was plenty. You know, it was really a big piece of art to to chew on for a couple of years. Um, it's a suite of songs about, it's almost, again, like a theater piece. It's a couple, there's domestic violence, there's drug use. And the other thing that really impressed me was that he was a man who was writing in a female perspective with no self-consciousness at all. Caroline says, um, and then he says what she says, and the whole song is really from her perspective. Um, and that, I thought, this is freedom. You know, uh, this, you can, this proves that you can do anything. So when I wrote Luca, I felt free to write it from a boy's perspective, and I felt free to write it in the way that I thought would be understandable without spelling it out for an audience. And so I connect those two. Uh, I connect, L Luca to me feels like a hidden, what do they call them, Easter egg on the Berlin album. It's like the hidden, there's a hidden connection there um, that I always felt between that the Berlin album and the song Luca, which was a definitive moment for me. I'm just sitting here thinking, 
it's a good thing you didn't pick metal machine music or something like that. So yeah, well, you um, you could have probably played forty seconds of it just to give your audience a taste, and then you'd be like, okay, that's enough of that. Um, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Did you um, have you, did you ever meet him? Many times. Yes. Um, I met him. I, I became a big fan. I would see him every time he played in New York City after that, usually alone, because I could never get any boyfriend to go with me. Uh, they were never in the mood for Lou Reed, so I would go by myself. And I used to fantasize about going to the back door and saying, hi, I'm a big fan and all this. And I never could bring myself to do it. Um, but after the first album came out, I met him, I think on my 27th birthday, I was doing a bunch of promotion and I was slated to perform on um, MTV underground show called, come on, Suzanne, you can do it. Uh, anyway, I met him on this show uh, and you can still see it on, um, if you Google it on YouTube, it has the two of us meeting for the first time. And no one told me that he was gonna do the interview. So I completely lost my cool. Is it 120 minutes that you're talking about? 120 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Well, well I'm afraid you're, you may have to give us more details than that. You completely lost your cool and, and, and? Uh, so he, I was doing a benefit for Greenpeace. That's why I was there. I was not only supposed to be there to talk about my work, but to, and he, so he looks at me and he goes, so Suzanne, what's Greenpeace all about? And I just froze. I was like, I, um, uh, and then I just put my hands over my face and I just like start sliding down the seat, which I mean, has never happened to me before or after. So he whips his glasses off if they aren't off already. And he starts telling me what, um, what Greenpeace is all about. And, and so we, we ended the interview in a great big hurry. And he said, thanks, Suzanne, for coming on. I say, no problem. You can see the whole thing. It's still right there on, on, uh, on YouTube for everyone to enjoy. Um, but that was the beginning, actually, of a very long, winding sort of friendship um, that we had uh, that had its, its, its friendly moments and its cool moments and, and all kinds of weird moments along the way. And then near the end of his life, uh, we became really quite friendly. And uh, um, I really am proud to, to have known him as, as a friend. And we had some moments that were very meaningful to me. Uh, before he passed away, I'm curious. Uh, you know, Berlin is a is it's not metal machine music, but it is a pretty polarizing album for a lot of people. I mean, you know, some people you know love it and find it really profound, and a lot of people really, you know, can't deal with it, can't stand it, don't think it's you know what the other people they don't they don't hear what other people hear, um, and you know as you well know and a lot of people know he was an artist who went for things he went you know for a lot of things and whether he always succeeded is open for debate maybe but he really pushed hard and tried for things that you know maybe they didn't work but he he went for it you know he went some extreme places and you know i'm not a creative person in that sense you know i do a podcast that's not really creative um but I wonder, as someone who is a creative person, how you how you navigate that with yourself, 
um, how, how you decide how much to push it. Um, do you just decide for yourself, I'm not really that person who pushes it? Um, you know, uh, I'm just, I'm just curious about how you think about um, how far you go with what you try to do. Yeah, um, I do think about how far to go. Uh, there have been times in my career where I think, oh, this is too much. I mean, even when I wrote Luca, I remember thinking, yeah, I don't know that people are going to like this. And in the beginning, they didn't actually. When I sang it as on the, my acoustic guitar, it would make the, A, sometimes they didn't know what I was talking about. B, sometimes it made them sad. And they, it so they would look sad and the audience would look down at the floor and they would look uncomfortable and they would look like they were waiting for me to finish so we could sing something nice. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I think I became known for a while for writing songs that pushed that edge. Like when I wrote the song Cracking, um, that was a song that people either loved it or they were like, what's wrong with her? You know, there it's sort of in that moment, which was 1980 when I wrote that, um, there were people who really got it, or, or the other people who just thought it was affected and weird. Um, and the same thing when I did uh, Blood Makes Noise, um, there were some people who were just like, yeah, and other people were like, what is she thinking? Um, so I, I, if it feels genuine and it's expressing something that I feel powerfully, then I'll go for it. And uh, if, I, if, uh, if it's really no good, you know, if it's really just something I'm doing in the moment, those songs generally fall by the wayside. Uh, maybe I'll do them once or twice in public, and then I say, I, I don't need to do this. It really comes down to, do, do I need to do this song or not, in, in the fullness of my career? So, I do the ones people like, like Gypsy, which has a nice chorus, but if I need to do a song like Blood Makes Noise, which I sometimes feel I need to do, then I go for it. And people will respond to that, usually. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. To get in touch, get more information, or buy Essential Tremors merchandise, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.